welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Welcome to another installment of Disinformation Wars. If you're a regular listener, you know that we've spent a lot of time on China lately. Recent episodes have looked at things like Chinese discourse power, the different ways the PRC is messaging to various regions around the world, essentially in what's known as the Global South, China's pandemic propaganda, and a whole host of other things. But we're not done yet. This time, I wanted to broaden the aperture a little bit and talk about what I think is a hugely consequential subject. That is, how propaganda fits into the unfolding great power competition that's now taking place between Washington and Beijing. When I interviewed him a few episodes ago, Josh Rogan of the Washington Post described what we're witnessing this way. He called it a systems clash. I think that's actually a very good way to look at it because it's become increasingly clear that China's value proposition to the world, its sales pitch, if you will, is that it offers a qualitatively different political model from that of the West. China's model is one that cares much more about stability and prosperity than it does about human rights or democracy or individual freedoms. And judging by the polls, the argument the Chinese are making seems to be pretty persuasive. Maybe not in the West, where there's more and more consensus about the dangers of getting in bed too deeply with Beijing in economic, technological, or even political terms. But certainly in the developing world, that message is gaining resonance. And it's gaining resonance because fragile regimes and underperforming ones are increasingly prioritizing engagement with Beijing over a cooperation with a Washington that is being seen broadly as actively pushing its own values. That, of course, is tremendously important for America's global standing, because our outreach to publics around the world is predicated on the idea that everyone's on the same page with regards to the importance of democracy, democratic principles, human rights, and so forth. Beijing, though, is clearly banking that that's not the case. And that's what I wanted to talk about with our next guest. Bethany Allen. Bethany is the China reporter at Axios, where her beat covers tracking how China projects power and influence beyond its borders. She previously worked as the lead reporter for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists China Cables Project, as a national security correspondent for the Daily Beast, and as a reporter and editor at Foreign Policy Magazine. She's also the author of the newly released Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World which is currently making a real splash in the news and in policy circles here in the Washington Beltway. Bethany, in other words, is a China watcher extraordinaire, and it's a real treat to have her on. Hey, Bethany, thanks for taking the time. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with your book, because I've written one or two myself, and I know that it tends to be a real art form to try and encapsulate the central argument into something that resembles a pithy and hopefully a provocative title. I think you've managed to do that, though. So let's start there. Tell us about what you call Beijing's rules and what the PRC is trying to accomplish globally. Yeah. So one thing that really unified my argument throughout the book is that the Chinese government wants everyone else in the world, from individuals to companies to governments to multilateral institutions, to align their behavior with China's core interests. And these are, you know, you could call Beijing's rules. Well, what are those core interests? Thing is, they've been expanding. Originally, it used to be limited to like, you know, discussion of Tiananmen, you know, the 1989 massacre. 
Tibet and Taiwan, the three T's. But we've seen these core interests expanding to include the genocide that the Chinese government is committing in Xinjiang to the national security law, basically the authoritarian takeover of Hong Kong, China's maritime territorial claims in the South China Sea, of course, any discussion of China's human rights record. And what we saw beginning in 2020 was that free scientific debate and inquiry about the origins of the coronavirus also, in effect, became a new core interest in that the Chinese government began deploying all of its traditional levers of influence beyond its borders to try to shut down that debate. Right. And information is a big part of what you're talking about here, whether it's in the form of overt public diplomacy or more covert propaganda and political influence. So how is Beijing getting this message out or these messages out? And what are the vehicles it's using to do that? I think the single most powerful tool that the Chinese government uses is denial and access to its markets. Here's what I mean. Every single CEO of every single company in the world that has interests in the Chinese market, either future plans to enter the market or current revenues that are tied up in the market, they all know that if they say anything, tweet anything, if there's anything on their company website that goes against one of Beijing's core interests, then that access to the market could easily be shut off and they could lose millions, you know, if not billions of dollars in revenue. And at the very least, you could say that this is one of the most successful PR campaigns in history, that the Chinese government has so consistently and for so long basically advertised to the rest of the world that these are the terms of engagement. Now, this is a podcast about disinformation, but I'll just really quickly throw in that it's not just the information environment that Beijing targets. It's it's also state action, uh, defense policy, and very core aspects of other countries' hard power that it also tries to shape through these mechanisms. Right. And let me drill down a little bit on that, because I think it's a, it's an important point. In Beijing Rules, you dedicate a whole chapter to how China is learning from and harnessing the expertise of another actor, Russia, in this domain. Can you talk about this phenomenon a little bit, what experts call authoritarian learning? What is Beijing messaging about? What forms is it taken? And how is the PRC really using the Kremlin playbook? Well, this has definitely evolved over time. It used to be that we all assumed, because what we were seeing was that China's outward-facing propaganda was pretty clunky, pretty clumsy, and pretty much centered around official rhetoric from its Ministry of Foreign Affairs and its diplomats and its state media. And, you know, that was just this very formulaic messaging around opposition to Western colonialism, the validity of its model, and these kinds of propaganda talking points. But what we've seen in an increasingly large-scale way is that the Chinese government has been using outward-facing and covert disinformation operations. Let me go back in time a little bit, first to 2016, but then even further back to 2014. 
So in 2016, as we all know, the Russian government made a huge global debut of its disinformation operations by targeting the U.S. presidential election. Now, by no means was this the Kremlin's first time to deploy outward-facing disinformation operations. Uh, we saw this in you know, Eastern Europe and former Soviet states uh, years earlier. But it was, you know, this became a, a huge point of discussion in the U.S. And what clearly happened in 2016 was that Chinese government officials took notice. They realized that the indignation they had felt, the anger they had felt at all this free speech in the West, that they weren't really able to touch, that there was an alternate way to try to change global narratives when they weren't able to engender self-censorship through access to its market. And that was through this information. And so within a, a year or two of the um, Russian disinformation operations targeting the U.S. public, we saw China-linked state-backed disinformation operations unfolding on Twitter and Facebook trying to interfere with political processes abroad. And we've seen that in an increasingly big way. And in fact, just recently, last week or a couple of weeks ago, Meta came out and said that it, uh, and I believe maybe a couple of other platforms at the same time, said that they were seeing the largest set of state-backed disinformation operations in history. It was connected to a state-backed disinformation network known as Spamiflage. But I want to go back further than that to say that the seeds of this were planted before 2016. That's what everybody points to when they point to China's authoritarian learning curve on global-facing disinformation operations. But it started sooner than that. And this is some unique reporting, um, exclusive reporting that I have in my book, looking at disinformation that was in Chinese on Twitter in 2014 that was clearly trying to disrupt the umbrella protests or some pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong in 2014. And I mention that to say that in the past three to four years is when U.S. and Western social media platforms began to try to track and publicize foreign-backed and particularly Chinese state-backed information operations in a big way. But before the platforms themselves were tracking it, it was still happening. But it was like the Chinese government was kind of dipping it, its toe in the water there. Here's where the Chinese government's goals are really more ambitious than what we see from the Kremlin. One of my favorite investigative reporters on China is Kate Cadell from the Washington Post. And she's written a series of stories about how Chinese public security bureaus, local bureaus across China, are building systems that allow them to, in real time, surveil and document and send alerts about narratives that are unfolding on global social media as it happens. So the idea, if this were to become functional, is that if something goes viral on Twitter that presents the Chinese government in a negative light, that public security bureaus across China would get real-time alerts. Now, what would be the point of that? The point of that would be so that they can then mobilize their disinformation bots, their networks, to immediately intervene. This is essentially attempting to turn China's own domestic censorship and propaganda machinery, which is highly effective, attempting to turn it outward. The Kremlin simply doesn't have the expertise and the ability to do that. 
but the Chinese government perhaps does. So I would say that's something to watch and something that I find deeply concerning, especially as, at least in the case of Twitter, Elon Musk has, to some extent, dismantled its machinery that is used to combat foreign covert disinformation operations. I think that's very interesting. And what we're seeing and what governments are increasingly becoming attuned to is this phenomenon of convergence, where false narratives, misleading narratives, political messaging that's intended for a strategic outcome is beginning to migrate from one information actor to another, right? We talked about authoritarian learning before. We really have seen this pick up speed over the last couple of years in the context of the coronavirus, to the point where there have been specialists who have called this Chinese and Russian and Iranian regurgitation of common themes, this sort of axis of disinformation. In your book, you talk about that quite a bit, about Chinese messaging in the context of the pandemic. Can you talk about that here? What are they trying to say? What are they trying to enumerate? And maybe more importantly, what are they trying not to say? Yes. So from almost the earliest days of the pandemic, really starting at the end of February and then ramping up speed in, in March and April of 2020, the Chinese government narrative about COVID origins began to crystallize. And in February 2020 is when we saw the first Chinese government attempts to deny that the pandemic had originated in China, which you know, seems or seemed at the time, it still does seem kind of a crazy thing. You know, that, that's a crazy hill to die on because everybody in the world knew that it started in Wuhan. I mean, we saw it unfolding basically before our eyes. But it's kind of like Hitler's theory of the big lie. If you just say it often enough, you know, maybe people will, will start believing it. And, and so what we saw was that there was this new connectivity between Chinese diplomatic Twitter accounts between and their public messaging, which was casting doubt on where the coronavirus had begun, starting to try to blame the U.S. for it. So echoing or sort of reflecting some of the discussion points we were seeing at home in the U.S., there was this, you know, we all remember um, ongoing debate about whether or not a Chinese virology institute had been involved in the pandemic. So maybe a virus they were studying, there had been a, an accident at the lab of, of some kind. And so you saw Chinese diplomatic Twitter accounts, Chinese state media accounts, and covert disinformation operations originating out of sort of the depths of the web saying that maybe the U.S. military had actually planted the virus in Wuhan or something like this. But here's where it gets really interesting, is we saw Russian-linked Twitter accounts starting to amplify these narratives as well. And Russian state media um, has been more effective. It, it has a, a little bit more of a organic appeal, especially in the global south, as compared to Chinese state media. And I really want to give credit here to the German Marshall Fund of the United States and their, their Hamilton 2.0 dashboard, which has done a great job of tracing and documenting the connectivity here between Russia-backed accounts, Chinese-backed accounts, and Iranian-backed accounts, and showing how they interact with each other and increasingly amplify each other's narratives online. 
And they, you know, the Hamilton dashboard was, I think, so prescient in that because we later learned through some investigative reporting that the Chinese government and the Russian government had, in fact, signed some secret memoranda of understanding during this period where they agreed to greater media cooperation and social media cooperation. So this was something we saw unfolding in real time. And that was a result not of just coincidence, but of an actual agreement to amplify each other's narratives. And I think that the, the, the pinnacle of this amplification, where it kind of all came full circle, because the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened during this time too, was with this claim that there were U.S.-run biolabs in Ukraine and the implication that the coronavirus might have originated from there. And of course, this was something that Russian state media and Chinese state media, you know, both went crazy for amplifying that conspiracy theory. Then later in the pandemic, and this is, I think, was even more harmful to real people's lives, was when both Russia and China, you know, state-backed either media or accounts or diplomats, cast doubt on the efficacy of Western-made mRNA vaccines, trying to get them to seem dangerous or ineffective. And we saw the real results of that in China, where the Chinese government never let those vaccines be imported and used. And, you know, China's less effective domestically made vaccines, when China finally opened up after its zero COVID policy ended, it made the, you know, the huge spike, enormous spike in cases there much deadlier than they otherwise would have been. So, you know, people died. People died because of this. Right. And one thing that's coming through very clearly, both in what you're talking about and also in the previous discussions we've had about China here on the podcast, is the degree to which China sees this as a big project, a whole of government enterprise, if you will, and how the PRC has really erected a vast sweeping bureaucracy with a singular goal to sell itself to the world. And that infrastructure encompasses a great number of things, right? From television channels to newspapers to websites. But the thing that is probably least well understood, at least by most Westerners, is something called the United Front and its organizations. So switching gears a little bit, can you unpack this a little bit for us? What is the United Front and what does it do and how does it serve the mission? Yeah, the United Front Work Department is the name of a particular bureau within the Chinese Communist Party. It's a it's a party organization, not a government organization. And the United Front Work Department's goal, its reason for existence, is to work among non-party members, either domestically inside of China or increasingly outside of China, to amplify pro-party messaging and to marginalize and repress any dissenting voices. And I want to really quickly locate um, the United Front Work Department within the overall strategy of the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping within China. So what we've seen from Xi Jinping is a very huge focus on intra-party discipline and also having the party be superior to the state. So there's a dual structure of government and party inside of China. And that's where for every significant government position, whether that's the governor of a province or the head of an important office, 
um, you know, all the way from the central government down to the province, down to the cities and even just districts. The Chinese Communist Party has a corresponding official. So for every government governor of a province, there's a, a corresponding Chinese Communist Party secretary. And that secretary is superior to the government official. And that structure goes all the way from the, from the bottom to the top. And one of Xi Jinping's major goals has been to bring every single Chinese Communist Party member, there's around 90 million of them, in line with his goals and his messaging. And then from there, to bring in the government, the Chinese government, to ensure that all the bureaucrats, and there's, you know, like millions and millions and millions of Chinese government officials, to bring their actions and their messaging in line with the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I spend time laying that out to say that what you've just laid out, the way that the, you know, China sees messaging as a whole of government enterprise, you can't get all these different moving parts you know, from Chinese state media to every single diplomat in every embassy and consulate around the world to so many meetings, uh, you know, between every level of government when you have of government to government exchanges, like city to city exchanges with, you know, sister cities in the US or whatever, or anytime China sends a delegation to like the G20 or ASEAN or whatever, you can't get that messaging, that external messaging in alignment with the CCP if you don't have this very firm kind of intra-party discipline. So back to the United Front Work Department. That department uses these kinds of party and government levers that have now been brought under the party's discipline to act in accordance with the party's core interests, with Beijing's rules, as it were. So what you get internationally, which is, I think, of, of most interest uh, in my book and to our current listeners, is that every time you get an interaction between anybody outside of China, so let's say especially business leaders in any city around the world, and they are interacting with any kind of entity that has ties to the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, whether that is Chinese state-owned businesses or China-linked faux community organizations. They, they appear to be Chinese local community-based organizations, but in fact are guided by Beijing. All of these interactions on the Chinese side are brought under the umbrella of the United Front Work Department, which has a whole bureaucracy to make sure that the messaging of all these organizations are in line with the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, using this same kind of lever of denial and access to the Chinese market, it's harder for you to get meetings with these groups um, or to get access to, let's say, you know, exchanges to China, free trips to China that are facilitated by these groups, let's say if you're a, a foreign business leader, unless you uh, tacitly or overtly agree to not criticize the genocide in Xinjiang, to not, you know, maybe you have to agree to not meet with Taiwanese government officials or to not set up a business in Taiwan or you know any one of these things. And I have some very detailed descriptions of interactions like this that are so local in the United States, it would really shock you. So for example, in the 1980s, the 1980s, <laughs> the late 1980s in California, there was a sister city relationship between like a US city and a Chinese city and a Taiwanese city. And there was a high school exchange program that brought together high school students from these countries and some other countries as well. 
And so the local U.S. high school put up flags from all these countries. And so diplomats from the local Chinese consulate drove down and threw such a fit that the high school had to take down the flag of Taiwan. This is how detailed, how localized, and how extreme this kind of messaging from the Chinese government has been for more than 30 years. That's pretty dramatic, but it strikes me that all of this depends on Chinese success. The potency of what China is selling, the potency of Chinese pressure depends on China rising. Because what we've known about and what you outline in your book is that the China model is pretty intimately linked to robust economic performance. But things are changing in China, right? The country's undergoing a pretty dramatic economic cooling. Its housing sector is underwater, unemployment numbers are on the rise, and there appear to be all sorts of frictions at the top echelons of the leadership within the CCP itself. What do you think all that does for the system that China's trying to explain to the world and to sell to global audiences? Well, it's not great, right? This isn't the CCP's like most shining moment. However, amidst you know all this, um, I guess, commentating in the US about how the you know the China model is over, how China's economy is facing certain doom. This is really, you know, if our if our pendulum was too far to the side of China's economic model can do no wrong, we have to have business there in order to survive as a company. Now the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction where we're all saying that's it for the China model. We don't have to worry about Beijing as a geopolitical threat anymore, the end. I mean that's of course totally ridiculous. The first major example that we know of, of the Chinese government using access and denial to its economy to to change the global narrative in a really dramatic and effective way was 1997, when there were two big movies that came out of Hollywood depicting Tibet as, you know, in a very sympathetic way, being colonized by the, the Chinese Communist Party. And after those two movies came out, both of those uh, studios, one of them was Disney and one of them was Columbia TriStar, faced basically sanctions in China. So they weren't allowed into the Chinese box office um, after that for a period of time. And I want to be super clear here. In 1997, the Chinese box office was minuscule. It, did, you know, it wasn't even a blip compared to U.S. audiences. And the Chinese economy was one quarter the size of the U.S. And yet... In the past 26 years, there has been no major Hollywood film that has gone against China's core interests. Not one. It was an incredibly successful thing to do, and it was done only on the promise of future wealth in the Chinese market. So coming back to China's current economic situation, first of all, the Chinese economy is huge, and it's not shrinking it's still growing. It's still growing at a, at a pretty fast rate compared to other you know, huge economies in the world. It's still growing probably at around 4.5%. And second is that you know, the Chinese government has known this moment was coming, this, you know, this moment where the, its real estate-fueled um, economic growth model was going to run out of steam. And it has been laying the groundwork to gradually transition its economic powerhouse to something different. And that is leadership in emerging technologies, including AI and uh, quantum computing and other things. 
and they've been they've been laying that groundwork for a while pretty successfully so i think it's it's very likely that this is a temporary if very painful moment for china's economy and clearly there's going to be a lot of people in china who individually lose their fortunes and never recover in the real estate sector and you know in in some downstream effects but is is china's economic growth over i mean of course not you know is the is the chinese government in terms of its comprehensive global power the second most powerful government in the world yes and is that going to change anytime soon no so with all of that taking all of that in mind i don't think that this significantly reduces the power of this kind of economic playbook significantly in the in the midterm this raises i think a a very logical question and uh, this will be my last one for you how are we responding to all this right we've been talking about how china is reshaping the narrative surrounding its rise and and censoring audiences and pressuring audiences to censor themselves or to suppress uh lines of inquiry that it doesn't like but here in the United States, our policy is undergoing a bit of a of a transformation. I think, right? Words matter, and we've seen the U.S. move from great power competition to long term strategic competition to managed competition in the way it describes our China policy. What does that mean in practical terms? Are we still competing with China in a meaningful way? And how does the shift in the rhetoric that we are putting forth play both to Chinese audiences and also to others around the world? Well, I would sort of divide the U.S. push on this issue into two separate tracks. One of them is a national security track, and the other one is a democratic or liberal values track. What we've seen first, starting with the Trump administration and now from the Biden administration and increasingly now from America's partners in the European Union, is an awareness and a realization that economic behavior needs more national security guardrails than we had previously acknowledged. And so as a result of that, you see uh, the rise of concepts such as friend shoring. You know, this is a play on offshoring where you encourage companies to have their overseas operations in countries that are friendly to U.S. and democratic interests. In terms like decoupling or de-risking, whichever term you prefer, which basically means reducing economic reliance on the Chinese market, de-risking would emphasize doing that in a more limited way, um, just in sectors that are of key national security importance. And you see uh, growing strategic cooperation between like-minded partners and allies, such as the Quad, which is between the US, India, Japan, and Australia. So from a national security perspective, I would say that the U.S. has been doing a lot and and leading a lot. However, my interest in this topic is really about democratic values on the global stage. I think that in recent decades, we have stopped talking, except in a symbolic way, about what democratic rights really are. But I want to be super clear Everything that you have, everything that I have, everything that we value is human rights. Our ability to buy a house, our ability to seek justice if one of our relatives is harmed unjustly, our ability to have savings, our ability to 
speak freely to hold this podcast. All of that is human rights. I think we really, a lot of times, take that for granted. And that's especially true when we sort of put human rights into this sort of side topic. Any country in the world can have national security. China has national security. South Korea has national security. Russia, Iran, they can pursue national security. What is far more precious is democracy and democratic rights. What really disturbs me and concerns me deeply about China's use of its economy in this way to push its core interests is that its core interests are authoritarian and illiberal, not simply that they are narrow geopolitical interests. It's normal for every country in the world to pursue its own geopolitical interests. It is not normal for the second most powerful country in the world to try to reshape and degrade values and norms on the global stage to bring them more in alignment with authoritarian values. This is my big concern. And I also feel that the Biden administration and our, our partners and allies are not doing a good job of addressing these issues specifically. So, you know, what kinds of policies could the U.S. adopt that would fundamentally change the behavior of so many companies that self-censor in order to access the Chinese market? Well, here's one. Uh, and and this, the thing about this one is that it, it blends both democratic goals and national security goals. This is something that a growing number of people are um, recommending, and it's something called an economic NATO or an economic Article 5, an economic mutual defense agreement, where when one company or one sector or one industry or one country at large faces economic coercion from the Chinese government, that all countries would immediately spring in, that there would be a mechanism that would not only provide immediate emergency assistance to that company or sector or industry or country, but would also levy some direct consequences on the Chinese government for having done that. So when Australia faced tariffs for calling for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus, or when Lithuania faced economic coercion from China for strengthening its unofficial relationship with Taiwan, if there had been some kind of economic mutual defense treaty, this would have been, you know, these would have been less worrying events. Well, I, I think that's a very profound point to end on, the importance of thinking a little bit differently about our legitimate concerns with regard to China and the national security sphere and the more overarching threat that what China is doing poses to the democratic order. So let's leave it there. Bethany, thank you so much for writing a profound book. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much again for, for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.